So that was a total setup to Sarah for obvious reasons, but also even worse, uh, the, the plot thickens. If you, were, if you were here for 1 Corinthians 11, that's the other, quote, text of terror about women where Paul seems to say something really, really hard and certainly hard to understand about women with they all have to wear head coverings. But what turned out, it turned out to be an actually really liberating text as we looked at it. Um, they all have equal standing in God's eyes. There's a distinction between men and women, something we believe the scripture says, but our culture is more and more abandoning. Um, but it was really an elevating and nobling text to our surprise. So Sarah read that text. She anchored that Sunday too. That was not planned. This was not planned. So she just happened in God's providence, not by our planning, that she read both texts of terror, which I was just sitting there chuckling when I found that out and uh, said a prayer for her. But yes, we all await with anxiety what the Lord's going to say through me. Um, thanks, thanks, though, Sarah, for being brave and anchoring again. Um, so... Let me mention last thing before I jump in. I just want to be, I'm going to be beating this drum over and again, and we're going to be talking more and more about this. Um, Sojourn Brazewood, Paul and Lindsay Ramsey are going to be uh, planting October 14th. Uh, we have Jen and Evan here who are going to be going with them and possibly some others from here, others from other places, some in their neighborhood. Just want to say we are a church that plants churches, and he is our church planting resident, and we, are, we couldn't be more excited about the fact that we are going to be not losing them, but sending them to go plant in a contiguous area to see the gospel go forth there as well in a new way. So we bless y'all. I just want to encourage you as a church planting congregation, pray and think about going with them. We would love to send you too. So you'll hear more and more about that, of course. Um, with the Supreme Court nominee, Brett Kavanaugh, there's that name. It's been all over, everywhere. Pasted and the allegations against him, whether or not you believe them, that's on the, on the side, okay? But there are allegations plastered everywhere on every form of news media against the Supreme Court nominee. nominee. Um, with that being the case this week and last, the mistreatment of women is on the forefront of our minds and hearts. Um, so that being said, this might seem an especially strange text to preach today. But in God's providence, we have it, and it is an especially strange text. But I think it's actually a really appropriate and beautifully fitting text and I know that seems like a strange thing to say. Um, but the fact is, that kind of brings us into the core of what um, Sarah said in her prayer, which is that God's word is fitting in all weathers. Um, we read it in culturally appropriate ways, but it's never to be sidelined. It's always to be um, believed on, thought about, um, desire to be understood in faith, and it is always the truth that sets men free. It was then, it is today, even here. And so, so I'm glad that we have this text to press into um, together, as hard as it is. Um, so let's just jump into point one here and look at this. Before we jump into the text itself, I just want to kind of set the table for you and point one is just uh, same standards, okay? Same standards. Actually, the amazing thing about Christianity is that um, it was the only religion of the day that, um, and certainly in the ancient Near East, that applied, basically, that, that gave the same status, that completely gave the same status to men and women, both made in the image of God, um, of equal worth and dignity, though distinct in role. So Christianity was welcoming, it was liberating, and it was empowering to women in a way that no other religion was. The Greco-Roman world thought, quote, Christianity as a religion of and for women as one of its worst features. 
okay? It was a common put-down then. Celsus, uh, uh, an, an opponent of, a well-known opponent of Christianity, said, Christians show that they want and are able to convince only the foolish, dishonorable, and stupid, only slaves, women, and little children. That was a, a rabid opponent of Christianity, okay? There was a, quote, Greco-Roman ideal of masculinity, and Michael Kruger, in his book, Christianity at the Crossroads, goes on to say, it was standard fare in the Greco-Roman world to attack new movements by associating them with women. Let me tell you four words, not so with Christianity. Okay? Moses wrote Genesis, and in Genesis 1, you can't get earlier than Genesis 1, the first thing God shows us is he makes all things, and then as the crown of his creation, he makes man and woman, and he saves the best for last in a sense. The most beautiful of all of his creatures in his image is woman. In, 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 in Genesis 1, and following, then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion. So God, and he's not saying just man, okay? Let them have dominion. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Uh-oh, here it is. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. That was to both. Both were image bearers and together they imaged God, the triune, multi-personal God who is one, better than if man had been alone. And so chapter two takes us to man, and it shows he was created first, and it says, hey, it's not good. It's the first not good we have in the Bible. Good, everything's good, good, good. And then we get to just man, it's like it's not good for him to be alone. So he makes woman, and together they image God even better. Two revolutionary things um, are said here in this, un, this peerless ancient Near Eastern document. The first is that God made humans in his image. We take that for granted today. All of our human rights come out of this fact. All the human rights that we take for granted today Christian or non, Bible-believing or not, in the West, come from the fact that we are made in God's image. Nothing else, God, human rights cannot be rooted in anything else. But this was, there was no other ancient Near Eastern cosmogony or cosmology text like this. It was standard fare for humans to be a waste product or a product of the sexual sort of uh, byproduct of the gods copulating. Um, that was very, very standard. Uh, but to have God say, I'm going to speak man and woman in my image was absolutely revolutionary. So first, that God made humans in his image, and then secondly, that he didn't just make them male, but male and female, equal in dignity. There was nothing else like that. But then we don't have to just stay in the Old Testament. Paul in Galatians 3, 28, he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, and there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, is Paul erasing distinctions, saying there's no difference? No, he's not saying that. He's saying we all have equal standing in Christ and equal access to God the Father in Christ. He's taking what Moses said up a notch in Christ even more clearly. We are made sons and daughters, but the reason it's said sons in the New Testament often, the reason we have an inheritance as sons, as firstborn sons through Christ, is that we have the inheritance that he had. And the law of primogeniture in the ancient Near East said that the firstborn son was the one who got the goods. And what the gospel says is that in Christ, male and female, we have the goods in Christ. We are made one. And distinctions fall away. Okay, so this is Paul in Galatians, Moses in Genesis 1. But also in his letters, Paul often mentions women as fellow partners in the gospel. In his salutations at the end of Romans, nearly half the people Paul mentions by name are women in Romans 16. 
Um, as I said last week, it's the same story in the four Gospels. Matthew goes out of his way in Matthew 1 to show us that G- Jesus' family tree, his genealogy is what Matthew opens with in the first 17 verses of the book. Um, and he goes out of his way to insert four women into that genealogy. Four women that Jesus came from. That was not done. It was an ancient Near Eastern resume, and you put the most impressive things on there. And again, in that culture, you didn't put women. You put the, you're from the men. Four women, and some of them of, of, uh, of ill repute, okay? So Matthew puts four women in there, one of whom was a prostitute, Rahab, one of whom sleeps with her father-in-law to get pregnant. Uh, she had twins, by the way. And the one that came out first, sort of, it's a long story, and it's in Genesis 38, if you want to read about it, um, Jesus came from, okay? So Jesus is proud to put those women in his genealogy and to say, I came from them, and I came for them. I came for all people, okay? Secondly, um, in the Gospels, women help fund and support Jesus' itinerant ministry. Women like the prostitute in Simon's house that I preached on a couple Sundays ago, and Mary of Bethany, they seem to understand what Jesus is about. They seem to understand. They give him worship that is only due in that culture, in a monotheistic culture where one God is believed in. They seem to understand that Jesus is God, and he is accorded and do all the rights of God, and they worship him. They give him, they crack open over his head and feet all of the wealth of their homes, all that they're worth, and they make fools of themselves. They worship him. The men are standing around saying, why are they doing that? What a waste. We could have given that to the poor. And Jesus says, shame on you, actually. We will, people will never stop talking about what these women did. What a, great, what a great expenditure. What a great investment. So they are held up as paragons of getting Jesus um, long before the disciples do. Thirdly, um, it's to a woman in John 4, the Samaritan, that Jesus first reveals that he is the long-awaited Messiah. To a woman, and it's uh, to women that he first chooses to reveal himself when he's raised from the dead. Um, at the cross, aside from John, the beloved disciple, uh, the men who loved him, his own apostles, are nowhere to be found. But women stand variously nearby or at a distance and mourn his death. And as I said, on the third day, Jesus' disciples are not at the tomb. They're conspicuously absent, and they are the ones who wrote this, these accounts. It was embarrassing for them to write. Yeah, he told us, we were, he, told us he was going to rise on the third day. We weren't even curious enough to go check it out. We were so afraid, we were holed up behind locked doors. It was the women who went. By the way, not because they remembered his words, but just because they loved him so much, even though they thought he was still dead, to honor him with spices. But they showed up, shamed the men, and it is to them that he revealed himself first and said, go tell my disciples I've risen. Just like I said, by the way. So the fact is that women come off rather better in the Gospels than men, and that by a long shot, okay? In the second century, we have evidence that suggests the Christian demographic could have been as high as two-thirds women. That's from Kruger via Rodney Stark, who's a Baylor uh, scholar. Uh, Inverse of uh, Greco-Roman population, that was the inverse of the Greco-Roman population, which was probably about two-thirds men, okay? So early Christianity, good records show that it could have been as high as two-thirds women in a culture where it was the flip. It was two-thirds men, okay? Because more or less, women were valued, uh, less valued, excuse me, and commonly left outside to die infanticide or exposure or aborted way more often in this culture because they were less valued, okay? So that's why one of the main reasons is that there were more men in the Greco-Roman culture. Um, By the way, don't think that this was just a Greco-Roman problem. Um, and unfortunately, abortion is live, alive and well in our, in our culture, but in many parts of the world, girls are aborted far more than boys. Over 100 million abortions in China 
have occurred. Um, the overwhelming majority of them are girls. This is the main reason that today there are 40 million more men in China than women, which is a, just a huge problem on so many levels for that country. According to one film, the film is called It's a Girl, quote, it's a girl are the three deadliest words in the world. The chances for abortion in a lot of countries are much higher if you find out you have a girl. Uh, Mike Kruger again says, quote, Stark has suggested a variety of possible reasons for the disproportional number of women converting to Christianity, but the main one is that Christianity offered a more favorable and positive environment for women. As compared to the position of women in the broader Greco-Roman world, the favorable environment would have included, let's say, five things briefly. Opportunities, number one, for real ministry involvement with honor and dignity. Two, the condemnation of female infanticide, which was staunchly done. No more. Christians said, no, we're not going to expose anyone, girls, boys. Uh, three, fewer marriages with child brides. So child bride marriages were fairly common. Christians said no, by and large. Um, number four, a lack of abortion, which, which added to Christian fertility, more babies and more people growing up to be discipled in Christ. And then five, healthier marriages where divorce was condemned and the use of prostitutes and concubines forbidden, which also added to greater fertility in Christian couples, okay? So those are five things, five reasons that Christianity would have provided a much more favorable environment, much more attractive to women, and there are more. Kruger goes on, this last feature of early Christianity is worth exploring a little further. It's well known that in the Greco-Roman world, married men were allowed a great deal of sexual freedom. They could have relations with slaves, concubines, and even prostitutes. Listen to this. Whereas the wives were expected to remain faithful to their husbands. That's called a double standard, friends. This posture toward women is exemplified in the words of Demosthenes, quote, we keep mistresses for our enjoyment, concubines to serve our person each day, but we have wives for the bearing of legitimate offspring and to be faithful guardians of the household. Okay, that's a lot of nasty information that's all true, as far as I know. What is my point in telling you this? Okay, let me just rattle off two points. Somehow, in the face of these, quote, texts of terror, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14, which Sarah just read, and there's one in Timothy 2, uh, in the face of these texts of terror from Paul, women still flocked to Christianity and found it not oppressive, not oppressive, but on the contrary, extremely liberating. Now remember, it's the, this same Paul who commands husbands not only to not divorce their wives and to stay sexually faithful to them, but what? Let's take it up a notch. To love them as Christ loved his church and laid his life down for her. What? What did Christ not give to his church to obtain his church for himself as his bride? What has he not given to us? What will he not give us? He laid down his very life and his eternal soul. And the standard that Paul gives, woman-hating Paul, text of terror Paul, is, hey, husbands, husbands that in the Greco-Roman world have all these things, this total double standard, you, your wives have to be faithful, you don't, in myriad ways. Paul says, no, 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 none of that, plus, from the heart, Love them like Christ loves the, loved the church and laid his life down. You talk about a revolution. You talk about an environment that women wanted to flock to, and indeed they did. So that's the first reason I tell you this. Um, there was nothing like this in the ancient world. Nothing. Okay? So although we have been trained in this post-Christian West through secular messaging, but also through those who claim to be part of Christ's church, um, to see Christianity as repressive, as repressive when it comes to minority rights, women's rights, and part of that is on the church. We haven't done the job that God has called us to do through his clearly revealed word. We've misinterpreted texts like this. We haven't loved our wives and the church as Christ has, okay? But we've been trained through, uh, quote, Christians and the secular West um, 
to, see, to think that Christianity is repressive to women, repressive to minorities, but the actual history of Christianity tells that this is exactly the opposite of the case, okay? Not that there haven't been abuses. There have been. We all admit that, okay? But Christianity, as rightly and biblically practiced, it liberates women. It always has rightly and biblically practiced, and it always will. And it always will, okay? And secondly, the good concern that we have in the West for minority rights, it has its root in the Judeo-Christian faith as exemplified and then incarnated by Jesus Christ. The Bible is the constitution for the oppressed, for the downtrodden, for the misrepresented, for the voiceless. No other religious text that I know of compares. Um, a few sources for you if you're interested. That, that Baylor scholar, he's a sociologist and historian that I mentioned, Rodney Stark. He's written a book called The Rise of Christianity. He's written The Victory of Reason, and he's written For the Glory of God, and he's written a bunch of else. He's prolific. But those are three that I would say, if you want to dig your fingers and your mind and your heart more into this stuff, go check Rodney Stark out. Or go meet with him at Baylor if you want to. I don't know if you can get an audience, but he's close by. Many of the Greco-Roman religions and institutions were male-only or male-dominated. By contrast, women in Christianity had numerous roles, could do almost everything men could do. I'm going to just rattle off some. Prophecy, prayer, tongues, miracles, healing, mercy, hospitality, generosity, wisdom, faith, helps, administration, exhortation, and leadership and teaching in many, many capacities. This continues to be the case. Let me quote from Kathy Keller, Tim Keller's wife. She says, the shameful fact is that many, in many churches, the scriptures have been interpreted so as to prevent women from exercising many, if not most, of the gifts of leadership and teaching, exhortation, encouragement, and so on, that the Holy Spirit has given to them. And can I add that Christ died to give them? Not only does this disenfranchise half the church, it amputates the body of Christ, she says. Let me tell you, when I went to, when I and Justin and Paul, we went to Bridgeway, Sam Storms' church in Oklahoma City at that Convergence Equip Conference, and we saw women and men together. I mean, Sam taught, he's an elder, and in their church they believe that, that men should be leading in governance, and we'll get to that in a second, um, in governance and in, and in teaching, thus saith the Lord from the scriptures to a mixed audience. Everything else is for women. Everything else, and women ought to be doing along with men because that is half the body of Christ, and together it makes a full body. Of Christ. Man, we saw women prophesying, praying for healing, praying, ministering in all sorts of capacities, uh, teaching in certain capacities. It just felt like the body at work. It felt healthy, it felt covered, it felt protected, it felt ordered. There were distinctions, but there wasn't an amputation. And I just want to say again, as I said a couple weeks ago, for the conservative wing of the church that has disenfranchised half of our body in some ways, by, I think, not walking in the fullness of the gifts that Christ died to give us, I repent, and I am sorry, and I don't want any more part of it. I want to move into all that God has for us, okay? So, with that said, the Judeo-Christian faith also admits differences between men and women, anatomically, emotionally, spiritually. For most of the history of ever, this would not have been in the least controversial today. That statement is controversial, but it's biblical, I believe, and we believe. We're equal in dignity, um, distinct in makeup, though, different in role. In a word, we're complementary. That's sort of the word we use to describe um, what we believe God has made us to be. Equal in dignity, distinct in role, and complementary. It's always been so, and it always will be. Um, I think that our world needs this truth more than ever now. Okay? So that's by far the longest point. I just have a few more. Just let me rattle them off. Um, 
different, let's move into different roles um, now, point two. Let me zoom in on this text of terror, uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 33b through 35. Um, As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it's shameful for a woman to speak in church. Two things here. First of all, scripture, and this is sort of this is absolutely true and also sort of taking from Kathy Keller. I don't want to plagiarize. Um, she says that, look, Scripture interprets Scripture. That's like maybe the number one rule of, quote, hermeneutics, which is just means textual interpretation, okay? The number one rule is that Scripture primarily is the first thing that interprets itself. If it is indeed the Word of God, then the Word of God needs to speak to the Word of God, okay? The clear helps interpret the cloudy. The easy to understand helps interpret the abstruse. This is abstruse, and it's cloudy, and it's very contextualized, and we want to understand that context. It's really difficult, though. We don't want to throw the text out. That's a bad move. But we also don't want to not contextualize it. That's a bad move. Okay? So we're on this precipice, right? So, but we have to let what, what else the Scripture says help us interpret this. Okay? Secondly, we're to understand Scripture in context, historical, cultural, and social, she says. And I would add lexical on a word level. Um, what did this mean to its original Corinthian hearers? And through them, what does it mean to us? So we have to go through them to find out what does it mean to us. Okay? So back to the 1 Corinthians 11 text, in the case of Paul's command for there for women to cover their heads, it seemed really outdated. We don't need to follow that. We can't really take anything from that, and Paul was a woman hater. Actually, what we learned is that um, he, it was a really ennobling text to women. He was saying they all have an equal covering in Christ. They're all of equal dignity and worth, and yes, there is distinction in the body of Christ between, between men and women, Okay. And so we, we still believe that today. And so it, probably how that translates is we looked at it, but it's ennobling to all women, um, but also that it probably means that women should dress modestly, one, that two, married women should kind of have a sign that shows that they're married in most cases. So in our culture, it's a wedding ring. The covering on the head, probably cultural, not so much, but the principles that that, that, that showed, yes, let's keep those. So that's kind of how we read that text. Um, Kathy concludes, we must find a way to obey faithfully whatever we discover to be God's revealed will, even if our cultural situation has changed since it was first revealed. God gives unalterable commands, but he gives the freedom to obey them in culturally diverse ways. Just to briefly, for a few seconds, sort of go over what I said last week. Um, Paul's not just telling, we just isolated this text. We, re- we literally pulled it out of its context when Sarah read it. And, uh, but he's not, it's out of its context and it seems even more abrasive, but in the whole text, he's not just telling women to be silent. First of all, in this text, he's, he speaks to those uh, speaking tongues in the church, in the corporate setting, and he says, do it in a way that order is kept. Keep silent if there's no interpreter. That's the first keep silent, right? And then he moves to those that are prophesying. And again, order being kept is the rule. And he says, don't speak over each other. Go one by one and wait for an interpret and wait for uh, your prophecy to be weighed. And then to them, those prophesying, male and female, he says, uh, keep silent. And, And so he's speaking to prophecy there. And then thirdly, he says, women, order ought to be kept. Order ought to be kept. And so there's some situation in Corinth he was speaking to, and he says, in a certain situation, keep silent. Obviously, if I believe this text meant what it seems to when you read it out of context, women be silent, having Sarah read that text would have been ridiculous, okay? Um, But that's not what we believe, and I don't know of a single commentator, conservative and not alike, that believes that that's what's being said here. Partly because he just comes out, like I said last week in 1 Corinthians 11, and he says, women, in the corporate gathering, when you prophesy and pray, do so in this way. 
So uh, he clearly is not saying just don't, don't say a word, okay? It's about order. It's about order. It's about order. Um, so there was decent evidence, decent, it's not, it's not an open and shut case that the women in Corinth, for a variety of reasons, okay, were being loud, distracting, using their gifts but not doing it in love, and it was taking away from order, it was taking away from the worship of the living God, it was distracting other women and men, okay? And so that's one of the reasons he's probably pounding this, okay? If you're doing tongues, if you're prophesying, if you're a woman and uh, you're in the corporate gathering, pray and prophesy, but be silent in certain situations. You're being loud and distracting, okay? So that's probably the situation that we're stepping into here. Um, let me, let's look at, let's take a little closer look at the actual words in this point here and, and phrases that Paul uses. So words combine with words around them um, and with the cultural and historical situation to help us ascertain what the original, in this case Greek, uh, words mean, meant and mean. So for instance, in Luke's gospel, let me give you an example. When Gabriel, I read this in my quiet time this week, when Gabriel comes to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and he tells her, surprise, that's, that's my translation. He doesn't actually say that. Um, <laughs> um, that's not in the Greek. But uh, she was surprised, and she was fearful, something that almost always happens when people see angels. So they're, they're not these cherubic things shooting arrows. They're terrifying, okay? Um, and he tells her what's going to happen. You're going to have a child. You're going to be overshadowed by the Most High. I think before he gets to that, right, he says, you're going to have the Messiah, basically. You're going to have a son. And, she's, and then she asks a great question. She says, how can this be since I am a virgin? Great question, Mary. Okay? She's no dummy. How can this be since I'm a virgin? That's the ESV translation, which most of us have. But the Greek reads literally, how can this be since I have never known a man? That's what the Greek says. So is the ESV doing a bad job of translating? No, because the most, that's the most literal rendering, what I just told you. How can this be since I have never known a man? But to our ears, when we hear that, that some of us, a half of the readers would say, wait a minute, you don't know Joseph? You don't know your dad? Like, what the heck? In this culture, in this biblical culture, textually and otherwise, um, what she's saying is, I haven't known intimately, sexually, a man. So what the ESV is doing is it's actually, if we had translated exact, those words exactly literally, it would have been a worse translation because the meaning and sense would be largely lost on a big segment of the readership. So virgin is not what the words actually say, but it is what they mean. That's my point, okay? So in this case, it's a text that's laden with cultural and linguistic freight. Thistleton, Anthony Thistleton writes a 1,400-page Greek-focused commentary, which I have and have not read all of, but it's been very helpful, on this uh, book, and he says this. This is his translation with everything that I just told you, and that's just the tip of the iceberg, kind of poured into his translation here. It's textually responsible. It's culturally responsible. As in all the churches of God's pe holy people, when congregations meet in public, the women should allow for silence. The ESV says keep silent. You see the difference, though? Should allow for silence. For there exists for them no permission to speak, and he puts in brackets, in the way that they do. Okay, Let them keep to their ordered place as the law indicates. If they want to learn anything, let them interrogate. That's a little more aggressive verb. I like it. Their husbands, their own husbands at home. Go for it. Interrogate them. But it might be distracting if you do that in the gathering. Right? For a woman to speak thus in public, for a woman to speak thus, interrogating your husband, even maybe from across the aisle during worship. Can you imagine? For a woman to speak thus in public, worship brings disgrace. It might, in that cultural setting, disgrace your husband. Especially, and some think, and I'm getting to this, 
is something that this is actually speaking to. Women can prophesy, women can speak in tongues, they can operate in all the gifts, okay? But when it comes to weighing, and this is a question, when it comes to weighing and evaluating prophecy, is this indeed from the Lord so that we can say, here's what God is saying, we think. That's a, a spiritual authority issue. And this is, but this is clear in Paul and in the scriptures. Spiritual authority in the family and in the church family for the protection and good of all is for the men. It's reserved for men, okay? And so this could be a weighing of prophecy. Is the Lord indeed saying this? In which case, if a woman comes up and weighs her own husband's prophecy and says, nah, that's not from God, that could be disgraceful to him, shameful to him in that culture, you see? So let me give you one example of his literal translation in verse 34. The Greek verb ESV says, for they are not permitted to speak, the word for speak. He says, depending on the context, so, you know, they're not permitted to speak. Depending on the context means either to stop speaking, as it does in verse 30, or to hold one's tongue, or to hold one's peace, or to refrain from using a particular kind of speech, or speech in a presupposed context. So you see, you can't put that all in when you're translating into the one word. But that's indeed the whole range, the whole lexical range of what this word means. Um, so, I've read you his translation. Let me just say one more thing that Thistleton says. He says, the majority of especially Protestant commentators regard it as axiomatic. So it's just a law, okay? That Paul refers here to some form of disruptive speech. Women, don't speak in a disruptive way that's disrupting folks from worshiping the living God as you're tending to do right now in, in your gift madness, Corinthian church. You have a gift craziness. Let's go for order here. That's what he's speaking into. Uh, ben Witherington, another scholar, says women are not being commanded to submit to their husbands, okay, but to the principle of order. Now, okay, his focus is on order. I'm not saying that women should not submit to their husbands. That's not, I'm not saying that, okay? The scripture is clear there too, but the focus here is on order, is what he says. Um, before moving on to very brief point three, four, and close, very brief, let me drop this bomb on you. I, I'm doing it at the end of point two and not the beginning for reasons you'll, you're about to, that are about to be obvious to you. Based on manuscript ev evidence, both internal and external, so in textual, um, in textual criticism, which is looking at the original text that we have and figuring out what, what does the, in this case, the Bible, what, is, what does the Bible actually say in the Greek and then the translation is a whole different issue. What did the original manuscripts say? Okay, that's, that's the science of textual criticism. Both internally and externally, we have decent evidence. Okay, this is from a conservative, charismatic scholar. His name is Gordon Fee, and there are others that agree with him. Okay, so internal evidence is like, in this case, Paul seems to be saying something here that's out of step. It just seems to come out of nowhere. He's talking about tongues and prophecy and giftings, and then women that keep silent in the churches. Now, I've showed you how he says keep silent three times, so that's not an open and shut argument, but it does seem to be out of place. So that's internal evidence, but external evidence is something that's also germane in textual criticism. Externally, in a lot of early manuscripts, a fair amount, this text is at the end of verse 40. It's taken out and it's put at the end of, it's out of the order that we have it in. So that's an, a bit of external evidence. So based on both of these bits of evidence that are the two that you use to evaluate in textual criticism, some trusted scholars, including Fee, think that these verses were not, here's the bombshell, were not original to Paul, were not part of his letter, okay? Um, Thistleton thinks it is, others think it is. Even if this is true, though, we have 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15, and some other texts that we need to deal with that basically say, again, the issue is, okay, I've tried to show you what I think if this is original, what he's saying. 
But even if it's not, what Paul is saying clearly and what he says in other places is the issue of spiritual authority, men teaching men in a way that says this is what God is saying through his word. And then governance, okay, um, is for men. Everything else, and it's for the good of the whole body, everything else is for women. Everything else for the good of the body. And if we cut that off, we amputate the body of Christ, okay? So um, that's that. Governance, authoritative teaching of men, this is what the Lord says, pastoring of the congregation and possibly weighing prophecy, possibly, are reserved for men. How's this going to plant in our congregation? We already know, if, you've, if you're a member of this church, you've actually read and signed on to, as an Acts 29 church, we are a complementarian church, which means we sign on to men only as pastors and elders, everything else is for the women, okay? That's the way we roll. And we want to walk into that everything else a lot more. A lot more. That's what our time in the gifts has shown us, that we want to walk into all that Christ died for together. All right, so I'm really amped about that. Um, the other thing is that as we walk into prophecy, the gift of pursuing prophecy and obedience to the scriptures more and pursuing all the gifts that Christ died for and the Holy Spirit's given to us, as we do it in, the, in our home churches, in our parish um, gatherings, but also here on Sundays and elsewhere, but especially on Sundays, we're probably, as far as the men, possibly the text pointing to men need to weigh prophecy and say, I think this is what the Lord is saying. I've, this is the way Sam Storms' church does it. Um, this is the way the church, the Presbyterian church that we were in in uh, North Carolina when I was in seminary did it. There was a sense of order. Everyone, was, everyone plays. Everybody was involved. Um, but it was run, if you think you had a word, it was run through the elders. Right now I'm the sole elder, so we're probably going to advance at least for now in that direction. Um, in that we'll, we'll, put it, we'll print it up in the bulletins and we'll have it, hey, according to 1 Corinthians 14, if you feel like you have something from the Lord and it has a place here in the gathering and maybe he wants to share it, we're not going to have a hot mic. Some people do. We're not going to have a hot mic, but we want to run it through an elder, so I'll be here. We'll orchestrate the situation so that it's easy for you to come, run it to me. When we have more elders, run it to any of the elders that might be sitting in the back or we'll make it clear. So that's how we're going to roll for now, in obedience to what I believe the word says and to way, the way other churches that I respect have done it. So that's that. Really briefly, the ultimate cultural moment. I just want to say, point three, the ultimate cultural moment. Um, it's easy for ev every generation thinks that, in the words of Tim Keller, it has reached the ultimate cultural moment. Every single generation. Do you think that we are an exception? No. We of all generations, seem to be the most proudly saying, we got it figured out, what, you know, and uh, you like that? Um, this is because human beings are proud and self-centered and generally, especially today, possibly the more ignorant of history, let me call history the wisdom of the ages, than any other generation that's preceded us, and that is not something to boast about, okay? But that is us, okay? That is us. C.S. Lewis has another name for this. He calls it chronological snobbery. It's a great, it's a Lewis, great Lewisian phrase. We, are, we excel at chronological snobbery, friends, and that is something we ought to be ashamed about and amend, but it also, I'm not here to heap shame, it also ought to give us a huge dose of humility. Maybe, maybe Paul, maybe the ancients, maybe the ancient church has something they can teach us. Maybe there's something we don't understand well. I mean, maybe especially when it comes to the issue of gender. I know there's a sense in which we think, and we have made some serious advances, by the way, all, all of which, in my, in my book, all the good advances of which have their roots in Judeo-Christian, in the Judeo-Christian faith, or most of which. 
Um, but we've also made some serious wrong turns, and I would say we are adrift right now, adrift in a sea of not knowing. We're not anchored, we're not moored when it comes to gender. We are just absolutely out of our ever-living minds, and we need help. We need some humility here. Kathy Keller says, consider the enormous hubris in appointing our present cultural moment as the yardstick against which God's word must be measured. And I would say, especially when it comes to gender, as if we have this one figured out. And whose cultural moment are we talking about? Christians in non-Western parts of the world find no difficulty, she says, with these so-called texts of terror. Instead, they struggle with, quote, turning the other cheek and loving those who hate you. Now, that's something that sounds preposterous in places where cruelty beyond imagining is the daily norm. Someone stringing you up in Syria to crucify you as a Christian, which is happening right now? Love that person. I can't even love my coworker when they snub me. I mean, that's hard enough for me. If someone's crucifying me, that's a hard word. So it's for all of us. It's for us especially, I think, in areas like this text. We have something to learn. Let us humble ourselves. Okay, and finally, that's the ultimate cultural moment, imagining God, excuse me, imaging God together. Jesus, kind of like taking it back to where I finished last week, he shows us, our Savior shows us the power, the atomic power that is released when you submit yourself, okay, and what you think you know, but where it's faith-seeking understanding. God, you know best, like Sarah said in her prayer, your word is perfect, show us, help us. We can use our minds, we want to dig, we want to explore these things together, but let us submit ourselves to the very word of God that he might teach us, that he might show us. It's through obedience that we gain understanding. Obedience is the soul of knowledge, George MacDonald. Okay, obedience is the soul of knowledge. Um, Jesus shows us the power released in submission. As he submitted himself to the Father, as I said, an atomic power went off um, through that submissive obedience that literally is remaking the worlds right now. And he does it through his body that he's also called to submit to him as he submits to the Father. Um, let me show you what um, Anthony Thistleton points out, uh, and then we're done. He, at the end of this book, he says, Thistleton adds that the proof of the permanence and goodness and pervasiveness of this order that Paul is pleading for, because a new age, a recreated order has been brought in, it's signaled in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 28, which we're getting to 15 next week, and the next three weeks will be there. It's on the resurrection. Yahoo! Um, he says this, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 28, quote, when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself, him is the son, the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God, that's the father, that God might be all in all. Thistleton comments, this exhibits an ordered trinity, not a subordinationist Christology. He's saying Christ is, he's one with the father, John 14. He is of equal worth and dignity. He is the one God, and yet he is willingly in the economy of the Trinity, in their roles, and what they are called to do and serve each other. He serves the Father. He submits his will to the Father. And there is a power in that that is primary and, and through which all creation and new creation issues. And so what the world needs now more than ever in this mixed-up age is a body, Christ's body, that is exhibiting that to the world, that is serving each other, trying to outdo one another in love, making it our ambition to go low in our homes and here in this church family and then into the world. So that's all I'm going to say about that. Let me just um, end with the words of Anne Voskamp in her book, 1,000 Gifts. She says this, 
God gave us Jesus. Jesus gave him for us all. He cut open the flesh of the God-man and let the blood. He washed our grime with the bloody grace. If God didn't withhold from us his very own son, will God withhold anything we need? If trust must be earned, hasn't God unequivocally earned our trust with the bark on the raw wounds, the thorns pressed into the brow, your name, friend, on the cracked lips? How will he not also graciously give us all things he deems best and right? He has already given us the incomprehensible. This is the word of God, and the word of God is fully manifest in a God who gave himself for you and for me. As Sarah said in her prayer, he can be trusted. He can be trusted. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Even when it's hard, especially perhaps when it's hard, it has something to teach us. And it teaches us ultimately in you, in the bread and the wine, the fact that you poured yourself out for us. We bless you in Jesus' name. Come Holy Spirit. Amen.